hello and welcome to 25 and not famous question mark a new podcast that I am making with my friend producer Greg I'm currently sat in my childhood home in Manchester in bed I think one of my family members is hoovering downstairs so I hope you can't hear that I'm feeling like very on brand with the typical unknown podcast maker like I think I'm hitting all aspects of the stereotype required for this to be a successful podcast and moreover this is where I was dreamed of being at 25 so just knocking it out of the park on all sides. I came up with this podcast idea listening to loads and loads of podcasts after I left uni back in 2018 just basically where famous people were interviewed and my favourite hobby was to never be alone with my own thoughts, number one, that was my first favourite hobby. And my second favourite hobby was to answer all the questions on the podcast as if I was the famous person. So trust me when I say I have about 10 off menus, ready to go, about five how to fails, locked and loaded. And this is like a recurring coping mechanism crutch whatever you you want to call it that's gone throughout my life whenever anything goes wrong you know when I embarrass myself I'm suddenly in my mind's eye on the red safe from Graham Norton and the story has somehow with the distance of a television camera become incredibly charming and attractive whenever I fall out with someone I imagine them sliding into my dms because again I'm now famous miraculously much more attractive thanks to all the wealth that's come with my fame and they are ruining the day that they ever fell out with me. I have worked in a lot of theatres, and because I want to be a famous theatre maker, I imagine horrible co-workers suddenly needing to get my help because I'm such a big deal in the industry. And one day my very helpful, genuinely quite helpful therapist um, pointed out to me that this is probably something that I'm doing, imagining being famous in a future world, because I'm dissatisfied with the reality of the present. And basically, once you hear that, it's pretty hard to unhear it. Like, you can't go back to a time before someone said that sentence to me. And this podcast now is a new coping mechanism, because that coping mechanism has been obliterated. It's been ruined. I can't use it anymore without thinking about that therapy session. And this podcast is an attempt from me to get back into the reality of the present, being 25 in my parents' bedroom, not 100% sure what's happening, being someone in my 20s, in the 20s, and researching via the lovely and willing people that I know who have generously agreed to come and tell me how they are handling being in a similar situation just so I can find out what other options there are other than imagining myself as a famous person like there are definitely other options out there I want to find out what they are and I guess I want to offer a bit of an antidote listening to people who I genuinely think are living really interesting cool impressive like impactful meaningful lives who aren't celebrities maybe some of them will be one day who fucking knows yeah actually maybe offering a viable route because when you're listening to celebrities being interviewed 
it's kind of insinuated that you can follow in their footsteps and tread the same path of them. And I don't really buy into that at all. And I wanted to ask people questions where I might actually be able to use the answers to help me work out what I should actually do next, which isn't being, quote, marks discovered and suddenly found as a famous person overnight. Today, I am talking to my brother, Liam Patrick Langley. He got two Irish names and I got none. Not very fair. It's a really interesting chat. I'm so glad that he agreed to come on. I didn't know if he would. And it was just great because obviously we had pretty much the same upbringing, but we're doing such different things with our lives now and have done such different things with our 20s. And my brother has who is now turning 29, has changed so much over the last few years that, yeah, I guess it really gives me hope and motivation that this is a time where you can really find your kind of niche and try different things out. So that is essentially what we talk about, kind of finding who you are and finding ways to lean into that. So yeah, I really hope that you enjoy listening. Hello, bro. <laughs> Welcome right. to 25 and not famous question mark. Um, so we're actually recording this on Father's Day. Have you got dad a gift? I have not. I have completely Neither. forgotten until this morning when I realised it was Father's Day. So I'll have to buy him some guitar strings at a later date <laughs> to be confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, I don't even know how someone can go through that many guitar strings because he gets four sets of guitar strings a year. Maybe even six, like birthday, Father's like Day, little... Christmas from both of us. I reckon he's just got like a little cupboard full of them. But he just or he just uses them for alternative purposes. A hundred percent. He's actually like a guitar string um artist. He makes like weird models <laughs> with guitar strings. <laughs> That's World what War he's II doing. <laughs> That's what he's doing with his retirement. Hanging all the fighter planes with guitar strings. <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea. Basically, we're terrible children. Um our family isn't really about gifts unless we're receiving them. Um and then they are. <laughs> unless it's about mum. And then whether it's her birthday or Mother's Day, and it's the if you don't if you get forget to send her a card, even if you're living on a remote island with no access to the internet or post, if you don't send her a Mother's Day card, you're dead to her for the next year. So that's always good. I just do an Instagram now. I didn't send her a Mother's Day card. I just did an Instagram, but actually it didn't really get any likes. So I really want to archive it, but then I'm scared that she'll notice that I've archived it, and then I'll be dead to her. Yeah, it's a risky proposition. That so basically, we're amazing children. Um, what I want to start off asking, and I don't really know the answer to this, even though I obviously knew you, but all the birthdays, I guess, um, fold into one in, in a way. But what were you doing the moment you turned 20 years old? Do you remember what you were doing for your birthday? Not really. That's a really good question. So I would have just been starting my second year of yeah. uni. Like- I don't know. I was probably in some grim club in Oxford with Blue VK's drunk out of my mind to be honest i don't remember it very yeah. well clearly probably, it wasn't as memorable <laughs> probably straw pedo two bottles of wine spent 100 pounds on vks called <laughs> my dad and asked, asked for some more money <laughs> i'm not gonna say that's not a possibility but yeah i can't remember it particularly clearly to be honest yeah i will never forget and i'm sure we'll get onto this uh the week after my freshers week you came back to oxford to visit and I saw you in a horrific club, which so- shortly afterwards closed down, thank God, called Wahoo. 
not something that I ever felt. Did what it said on the tin, I Um, (laughs) Really the opposite. And um, you just kept coming over with bottles of VKs being like, give these to your friends. And I'm like, I don't have friends yet. (laughs) There's no one for me. I was helping you make friends. That's what you you need. (laughs) And then you told me the next day that you spent £100 on VKs. It wasn't my price. Which is probably 100 VKs, realistically. I think it was some sort of um, deal, like eight for ten pounds or something. So yeah, it was it was a lot, for sure. Yeah, that was in a period where basically straight after university, to basically everyone's surprise, you went straight into a corporate job, and you were living in Manchester, but back well in Stockport, which we pretend is in Manchester, um, our parents' house, and you were working for like an audit company. Is that what they do? Yeah, I mean, I probably shouldn't use any. Not, I don't yeah, know yeah, we're not going to name them. One but of yeah, the ones was, that you may have heard of if you know anything or two about audit. It was one of the big four, basically. And I, for some reason, decided with all my wisdom as a, as a fresh graduate that what I wanted to do, having done a biological sciences degree and being obsessed with birds and wildlife and nature, was move back to Manchester and work as, as an auditor for a big four company. And that was, that was just a really, really good decision all around. I mean, it worked out yeah. really well for me. Amazing. Especially given that your tutor at Oxford at your graduation, supposedly, this is according to some very biased parents, in my opinion, um, begged you to stay and do a PhD. And you were like, no, 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 no. It's time for me to make some money. So you did that for about eight months, I think. And I remember you coming to visit. It might have been that weekend with all the VKs. And I was literally begging you to quit which I like to think was the catalyst. I'm sure it probably wasn't. But in my version of the story, I basically saved you from that job. And now you are a few years down the line from that and you've just finished a PhD in Gulls. That's why I tell everyone when people ask about your PhD. I just say that it's in Gulls. And because I'm in the South, everyone's like, Gulls? <laughs> Girls? <laughs> like no one can understand yeah, it's what really hard I'm saying. To- yeah, I've had that problem with people. But yeah, what I wanted to ask about that was, is this like where you are now, sort of like living in Cornwall by the sea, having just finished this PhD in Gulls? Is that something that you ever imagined, living that kind of life? And if it wasn't, what what would you have imagined for yourself at this kind of age? I don't really know what I imagined for myself. Maybe that's a bit of a sort of cop-out answer, but I think maybe moving through life I've never really had a very like defined plan of like what's Mm. now next and so with going with sort of decision to go to Oxford and study biology I think the decision was sort of based on like having had a really strong interest in the natural world as a kid and especially birds Mm. and stuff which I assume we'll talk about like having a good aptitude for science subjects at, at college and then just going you know I really want to go and study biology went to an open day really fell in love with the place and the department and stuff and that was like great I'll go and do that and then sort of I didn't really know what you would necessarily do with that career wise as part of my degree we had to do an undergraduate research project and I got to go and live on an island called Skoma in Pembrokeshire off the coast of South Wales for like three months and basically look at these birds called Manx shearwaters which is a type of seabird and I was weighing like 100 chicks every day to look at their growth rates 
in relation to sort of mm-hmm. different factors and stuff not to not to get too technical but i live with a load of phd students on this amazing island where you know mm-hmm. just like thousands of puffins like flying around like where you live <laughs> and like like staying up till like 4 a.m to catch the manx shearwaters and they come back to their burrow because they come back at night because they're and they get... give you cuts that turn septic yeah <laughs> you know when hands you're covered picking in... them out of the underground <laughs> nest <laughs> yeah lacerated hands covered sounds like infections. a dream <laughs> but i think meeting and living with like people who were doing research sort of gave me the idea of what that would be like at least maybe not as a career but at least as a sort of next step because phds are sort of three four years and mm. but i think that also gave me a little bit of a, a sort of crisis of confidence in some respects because the people who i was doing the, the who were the phd students when i was an undergrad they were really really sort of like competent researchers and i sort of didn't feel like i was like very good at that because i think when you go into conservation science ecology that sort of mm. thing it's through an interest in the natural world and like maybe with a sort of well-meaning desire to be like oh i'm a conservative i want to be a conservationist kind of thing but what you don't realize is that to actually do a phd like to do like like ecological research it's um you really need to be quite like good quantitatively so a lot of it is you'll go and collect your data and you have to then run statistical analyses on it using coding programs and i sort of Mm -hmm. didn't really really realize that until my undergrad project and i didn't think i was very good at it and so i thought oh, I don't know, like, I really like biology and I really like research and I love seabirds and I'm super into it and I've got all this interest, but, like, I just don't know if I'm competent enough, like, quantitatively compared to these people I live with, which, you know, in retrospect, looking back was ridiculous, like, comparing myself as an undergrad to, like, a second, third year PhD student. Yeah, I heard it as, like, you're on an island doing a research project as an undergrad that is a research project designed for PhD students and it's incredible that you were even there. So for you then to be out there having a crisis of confidence because you're not as good as PhD students is really interesting. It's a perfectionism. Um, I wanted to thing. ask, well, totally, what I what I what that made me think about is from my perspective, and you took issue with this when I sent you over some ideas for what we would talk about, um, you were a child genius in that you literally had to see a child psychologist you were being concerningly clever, basically, in nursery, is the what I've gathered. The story of um, you being a child genius is that you were playing in a sand pit in nursery and you looked up at the teacher, you were about three years old, and were like, oh, miss, miss, these two dinosaurs shouldn't be allowed in the same sand pit, should they? And she was like, why not with a child talking to me like an adult? (laughs) And you were like, well, because this dinosaur was from the Cretaceous period and this other dinosaur is from the Jurassic period and they never would have been alive at the same time. And they were like, let's call a psychologist (laughs) immediately. And I just wonder if because you have been sort of incredibly talented academically and that is the sort of primary thing that people do with their childhoods up until you know the end of university do you think that that played a role in having this crisis of confidence was this kind of the first crisis of confidence you had had in that respect um yeah I think I think potentially I think I think maybe there's a couple of sort of threads in that I mean I guess as a little kid I obviously was like hyperlexic which is obviously like very prodigiously good at like reading and writing and i had like mm. special interest in terms of like like you mentioned the dinosaur story i think dinosaurs were my special interest then i was especially interested in tractors then it was shells then it was <laughs> whatever else tropical fish then it was you know and you know i think these are potentially traits of people who are neurodivergent like and i think mm. you sort of it's not something i necessarily would definitely claim to be but i think there's strong indications that i am and that's probably actually without me really thinking about it much until recently has probably affected my whole 
sort of developmental trajectory mm. in childhood and stuff. But yeah, in terms of like, in terms of crises of confidence, I think that was maybe the first time where I felt like I'm not academically good enough. You sort of make the really valid point that like what you do from being four to being 18 and then 21 if you go to university is that you're just on this treadmill of next thing, next thing, next thing. And it's all very, it's, it's lined up for you. You know, there's mm. not there's not really much choice to make. You have to decide which A-levels or GCSEs you want to do. You have to decide which university you want to go to. But that was all, I sort of followed interest. And then I sort of mm. panicked a bit because I was like, okay, I'm not going to necessarily stay in academia. Despite, you know, other people, like you say, my college tutor was very encouraging. because I think you'd be great at academia, blah, 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 blah. And obviously yeah. that, I wouldn't say necessarily I'm great at academia, but that turned out to be what I ended up going into. But like, mm. yeah, I just sort of panicked. And a lot of my friends were doing economics degrees and they were all doing these grad schemes. And I was like, maybe, you know, what I sort of sat down at 21 thinking I was sort of vaguely old and like, okay, what do I want from life? Do I want a good job? Do I want, do I maybe want this sort of nature biology thing to be more of a hobby? Do I want to like try and earn money and, and have a, have a sort of corporate career and then do sort of holidays where I spend my holiday time looking at nature and stuff. And I sort yeah. of didn't know. And it was, what I did line up was actually, I went, I, I got a assistant warden position on North Ronalds A bird observatory. So North Ronalds A is an island in the Orkneys in Scotland. Um, it's the northernmost island of the Orkney Isles and they was I didn't know what to do so I was like okay I don't think I'm going to apply for PhDs because PhDs are quite hard to get and especially without a master's degree and I'd left it too late to apply and I sort of was like I'm just going to focus on my exams then what will be will be kind of thing didn't really make a sort of five-year plan or any of that kind of thing yeah and then I had just applied for this thing and it would have been from the August to October of 2015 or November of 2015 so just after I finished in June 2015 and so I was going to do that. And then I was just, it was all sorted out and I got it. And basically you go and live on this island and twice a day you walk around a loop and you count the migrant birds. And it's like, because of its location, it's amazing for rare birds. And it's literally a whole building that's whole purpose is to record bird migration. And I was like, mm. sweet, I'll go and do this. And then I'll work out what I'm going to do in, when I get home after that. And yeah. all my friends were going off to grad schemes and stuff. And then in the sort of July, I just was emailing this guy from North Carolina. I was like, there's not, just, just to check, because I have a really serious like dog fur allergy. It gives me like, I can't live in, I can't be for a long amount of time in a, in a house where there's dogs. Yeah, like you would die if you were around a dog for too long. Well, and especially when you're talking North Ronaldo, which is like a helicopter to Orkney, which is like a, like a boat slash helicopter slash plane to like Aberdeen. Like you, Great, you're, yeah. you're, you're remote. Where the you're nearest not. hospital is, yeah. It came to be that the cleaner had a dog and so I had to drop out. And so then I was like scrambling. And That's I was so like, interesting. okay, what am I going to do? I was working in Oxford still. I'd, I'd stayed to work in the bar for conferences. So in the summer, the Oxford colleges will have loads of people coming from all different universities around the world and guests and they host weddings and conferences and stuff. So I was just working at the bar for that. And I was like, still at uni, everyone else had left. I was feeling like I'd fallen off a cliff and I was like, okay, I yeah. don't know what to do. And then all my friends were like, why don't you do it? You know, why don't have a look at these grad schemes? And I looked at it and I was like, you know, maybe it'd be interesting to be an auditor. You get to know all different sides of different businesses. Like there's... I never really had any interest in business, but I was like, if I was going to do a corporate job like all my friends are doing, maybe I'll just sort of follow that it was it was kind of a bit of a moment of weakness I guess but that's what I ended up doing so I applied for this this grad scheme for this big four company ended up getting a place and starting there in September and then that's how I ended up doing it and very quickly realized that that wasn't for me but yeah it was it was really a lot of coincidences that led me to it something that I think would be good to touch on is how did you then know okay academia is right and also maybe do do I still do I know that yet Mm. (laughs) And also maybe what is the difference between being good at school and being the right kind of person for academia? Because I think a lot of people get to university and think, fuck, should I just 
do like I, there's even a joke that I have with all my friends about doing a panic masters because you don't know what else to do and you're like well I was good at uni I'll just do a panic masters and I remember mum actually kept suggesting to me when I didn't know what I was doing after uni that I should do some sort of creative writing masters and I was like you don't suggest the panic masters to me <laughs> I come to you and suggest the Panic Masters when I'm desperate. I mean, um, but yeah, I think it's almost universities trading in people's uncertainty. It's like, come and do this mm. one year master's and you'll be so much more employed. It's like, give us 20 grand. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's an interesting point that I hadn't really thought. Of. I think the best type, not that this is career advice for younger people, but integrated de- degrees with integrated masters are the way to go. I think if you wanted to do a master's. Or, yeah. or a master's by research. I think these MSCs, like these masters of science in, in my field, are very expensive and I don't think they're actually that much different from a third year at a sort of decent uni in the same yeah. course I think they're very similar um yeah. but they're very expensive and they just allow you to defer making any decisions for a year basically um mm-hmm. which you know there's something to be said for in some cases but I think you have to be really careful yeah. about how you choose them this is not it's almost because... like an issue when education runs as a business <laughs> oh it's, yeah it's almost like universities should be for <laughs> for the betterment of society <laughs> rather than making money for universities but yeah um so in terms of what I was doing, I was just, yeah, working for this job, living in the Northwest, and I was I was an auditor, so you have to go to other businesses, and so it's like, wake up at 5.40am in January in the rain to get a two-hour train to Blackpool to sit in an Ooh. industrial estate at a business that, I just can't remember, I'll tell you the worst, the worst one, just because it was hilarious, is I audited this company called, I think they were literally called Airbags Limited or something, <laughs> I'm not sure that's the exact name, and you know, don't, don't quote me on that, but they made airbags, right? And they stuck us in this room above the testing facility where they tested the airbags. So all day we were sat there trying to do the accounts and it was just like, (laughs) just random explosions. I think they just put us there to keep us on edge. But yeah, I was like, "Mm, do I really want to go to this airbag factory every day for the rest of my life to look at their account? I was just like, I'm not doing this. And so I was just, I was just sort of casting around for what to do. And I was thinking, okay, you know, I was quite good. Maybe I'll go back into academia. I sent off a few sort of poorly conceived emails about potential master's project, including to my my PhD supervisor and current current boss, actually, um, which I don't think he remembers and we've never discussed. But yeah. it was like, I'd like to research birds. Like, it was it was very naive. It was, it, I, I really think he doesn't remember because I'm not sure he would have given me the PhD if he did. But then I was on this this Facebook group called UK Gull Identification. So a Facebook group where pe- people post pictures of their, the gulls they've seen and they asked, what species of gull is this? And I'm sure all you... Iconic, get me in. After this, after we're done with this, get me in. <laughs> the traffic on it's really dropped, you know. It was really peaking around 2015, 2016, okay, the UK Gull ID groups. So it's not really... Let's bring it's not it popping off anymore. <laughs> um... But yeah, and I saw this put this PhD advertised and the, the, the academic who advertised it, again, probably guess shouldn't name, but I had met because they had come up to do a Viva exam. So when you do a PhD, you write your thesis and you submit it. And the exam part of a thesis is you have a three hour verbal exam where an expert from your university and an expert from an external university basically quiz you for three hours mm-hmm. about what you've written and sort of interrogate it intellectually. And, and you did that at the end of your undergrad? Yeah, no, I did that at the end of my PhD. But okay. while I was working in the lab group as an undergrad, someone, a PhD student, had their viva. And my current, my PhD supervisor came up and examined it as like an external examiner. Right. And so I had met this person and they were advertising this PhD. I was like, you know what, sack it. I'll just apply. Living in Cornwall. Oh, we've been to Cornwall on holiday. A lot of kids quite like it down yeah. there. Why not? It was like the interview was in two weeks. And I was like, I don't know if I'll get it. But whacked in a CV, got the interview think mum paid for me to fly down to Newquay and it was all just a bit like none of this was like part of a five-year plan or anything it was very much like yeah. I like goals I know I'm, I'm you know I've met the person I know they seem like a decent person I've got you know a decent qualification in 
the relevant subject. I've got some experience that's relevant to the PhD from my undergrad project. I'll just apply. And they offered it me. And then, yeah, I moved down to Cornwall in the, in the September. And actually, I was woefully underprepared. And I wasn't really ready to be an independent researcher. And I think they took a bit of a flyer on me, to be honest, as a PhD student. Because I don't think I had the best CV, but I think they sort of, a couple of them knew who I was and they knew I was interested in you. Know, I think I managed to sort of come across in the interview. Because I had an interview with five people. I had to give a presentation about my undergrad work and then get sort of grilled by these five people. So it's quite, quite intense. And I think they could probably, because they knew my undergraduate project supervisor, they could give him a ring as a reference and be like, is Liam good, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah. I think I wouldn't have just walked into any PhD. I think it was a very, PhDs now, don't want to go into too much of a tangent, but a lot of them are these things called doctoral training programs. And what they are is these pools of funding between multiple universities. So the one I was in was the GW4, Great Western Four. So that's Exeter, Bath, Bristol and Cardiff. And a supervisor might meet a student, whether through they're doing a master's there or they get in contact with them externally. And then they'll be like, okay, I'd like to work with this student on this project. And then they put it up for this central pool of funding. And it's assessing the quality of the candidates and the projects and the suitability of the projects of the candidate to do the project. And the, these centralized DTP things, I think they really select for like a certain type of student who's very self-confident in the way they present themselves, the way they handle interview. I think that, I mean, again, this is another aside, but I think they're probably quite problematic in the way they, they're, they're quite ableist, I think, in the way they select candidates mm. i think i don't think yeah. they're great but yeah i don't think i would have necessarily been successful in that arena because i was relatively inexperienced yeah. and i didn't have any academic papers published i'd only done an undergrad i hadn't done a master's so i think it was yeah. very very fortuitous circumstances and i just happened to do it and i started it and then and then yeah so like i didn't really have the skills i needed i wasn't great quantitatively like i didn't really know how to write well scientifically and i think i really developed as a phd student and what i liked was the sort of theory and the yeah, I really like ecological theory and I love doing the field work and stuff like that. And what I've mm. really developed as in the last, well, I finished my PhD every year ago now, but as a PhD student, I really developed quantitatively and I got really into statistical modeling and understanding how to frame research questions and then how to translate a broad research question into like, okay, so given the data that we've got and the thing we want to know, how are we going to frame that in terms of like a statistical model and how are we going to, we're going to frame that question, I guess. And, and that's something I really, I think I really developed as sort of a quantitative ecologist not to go into too much technical detail but mm. yeah so I, I don't think I necessarily even I think I had the, the the passion for the subject area and I think I was good academically in terms of like rote learning facts like you have to do all almost all the way up to you know to, yeah. the, to, to the end of undergrad a lot of undergrad especially in science is, is a lot of rote learning facts which is not really yeah. the skills you need so yeah I did feel quite underprepared and I think I had to really develop and go on training courses and yeah so yeah. it was interesting it was interesting really definitely so from that PhD onwards, you've been living in Cornwall, yep. um, which is somewhere that we grew up going a lot. So we grew up on the outskirts of Manchester in a lovely little town called Stockport. Um, that's only funny if you've ever been. And, hey, it's got the world's um, la- it's got Europe's largest brick built structure. It's got a hat museum. It's got a giant blue gla- um, glass yeah, pyramid. That- that viaduct has 11 billion, um, no, it can't be billion. It must, no, it must be, million. be million. It must be 11 million bricks, just so everyone Check knows it out. that ever comes up. In a Visit Stockport. 
yeah. and sponsoring this podcast. <laughs> I would love if Stockport um, Council sponsored this podcast as like a tourism thing. <laughs> That's the new fucking goal. Um, but so we were linked really closely via the Stockport Viaduct um, to Manchester, this incredible, vibrant city, but also Stockport's close to loads of incredible countryside. And we, well, the Peak District's nice. Don't. I mean, the Peak District's a denuded ecological wasteland. But um, that's a, yeah, that's again, possibly the subject. But of it's a lovely podcast. walk. It's lovely, lovely walks, walk. lovely walks. We'll say that. We'll go lovely picnics. And if you like seeing hundreds of yeah. sheep and no wildlife, it's, it's beautiful. Don't visit If you want to watch your dad <laughs> fight a sheep when it tries to eat your buddy, <laughs> go to the Peak District. Mems. But um, we sort of grew up kind of either um when in our family situation getting dressed up a little bit to like go into town for like a pizza express or a chroma and a bit of like shopping or we would be putting on like full-on gaiters and walking boots and going for a hike or going camping by the seaside those were kind of our holidays growing up um like sitting in the car in the rain at the campsite watching harry potter on a tiny portable film thing and now i like expensive food and getting dressed up to go into town and I live in London (laughs) and you live on the coast in Cornwall and I just wondered if that's something that you sort of attribute to your childhood if you ever consider yourself living in a city if you think that you're you need to be in nature like how has spending such a big portion of your 20s where a lot of people we know are living in cities living in the countryside like had an had an impact on your life basically i think i've sort of gone to smaller and smaller places so obviously like you say growing up in manchester that was great i went to one school for high school and then left and went to sixth form at a massive sixth form college in the center of manchester with a lot of my mates who live nearby and we all had uni rider bus passes for like i don't know what mm. they were but they were like a hundred odd quid for the year and you could go on any bus basically so we sort of had the run of manchester and we went out a lot and i feel like especially compared to people i met undergrad in the first one i feel like I'd, we'd been out a lot and you know may have bought the occasional fake id off off the internet and gone to like student areas <laughs> of manchester when we were 17 and stuff like that. and i feel like i had a really good city experience and going to gigs and going to festivals and all the rest of it you know mm. and then i think i went to oxford and that was sort of i was a bit worried to go to oxford because i was a bit like people are going to be boring there's not gonna be anything to do there's not gonna be enough nightlife for me all the rest of it yeah. and actually i think it was it was big enough as a city i think there was plenty there um Mm. in terms of you know like i went out and went out for meals like all that sort of stuff you know loads of events like yeah that sort of life and then i think yeah moving to cornwall is a bit like there isn't really that i mean my first year i lived in student accommodation with a load of master's students and so i did sort of have a bit of a second freshers and go out a bit but there is only one club here called well now there's two actually by the time there's only one club club international (laughs) the least international venue you had ever attended (laughs) (laughs) do you reckon it's named ironically or just i don't uh, know ignorantly uh, uh, maybe the cornish people genuinely genuinely think it's international i don't know it's it was terrible but yeah. yeah um but i think in oxford actually it was good because there was there's there was port meadow which is like a big area of common land on the floodplain of the the thames just north of just north of oxford and i could walk there or cycle there and so i would go three or four times a week when i was an undergrad to go to go birding and that was like a real escape and i really liked having that and i could get the bus out to far more reservoir which is just out 15 minutes from the city centre and so I think it, that was a balance for me because I was a bit younger as well so obviously I was much more interested in going out and drinking and all the rest of it I th- felt like mm. I could balance it so you know on winter evenings there'd be a massive roost of, of goals again a recurring theme in my life <laughs> on the floodplain on the winter flood so I would cycle up at 5am 
stand there in sort of minus two, scanning through these lines of goals as it was getting dark. And then I'd nip back to college, get changed, have a shower, go and go out. And I could sort of, it was almost like living a bit of a double life. Not that I kept mm. the bird side of it secret. But yeah, I think that was a nice balance. And then living down here, it's been much more having the opportunity to, to go all around Cornwall and making a real network of sort of other student birding mates. I think that's, and, and being able to just, so for example, on Friday, it was 21 degrees here and I'd, I'd had quite a busy week of work. So me and my partner, we just left work at lunchtime and went to the beach and went swimming this afternoon. I live five minutes walk from the reservoir, which is another really good place to go birding. And I think I think I really struggled actually with that from Ox, from going from Oxford back to Manchester where I ha- didn't have any of that sort of nature i know you yeah. obviously you, you raised a good point there is a lot of countryside around in the sort of an hour around manchester you can go to the peter yeah. street you can go to the the sefton coast you can go to the Wirral, you can go to north wales and and there's a lot of nice places to go but when you're working nine to five all week in a miserable job and then you've got a weekend and you're probably spending that in other ways i didn't i really really miss that connection to nature and so then going to cornwall it was like an absolute blessing really and i spent so much time doing that and i think now i think i would struggle to live not that I don't like cities, you know, there are great cities around the UK that I consider living with that I do have nature a bit more on the doorstep. So I think places like Newcastle and Bristol, and I don't know, I've mm. not thought about it in too much detail because obviously as an academic, the real limiting factor is what, which universities you can get a job at. But yeah, I think I probably would not want to live in a city now, but I'm glad I lived in a city when I was younger. I think growing up in a city is like really important in a way, like it does really set you up. There was nothing like shocking about university and watching yeah, exactly. other people who were shocked, I was like... I'm really glad that I'm not in that position. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, amazing. So have you ever wanted to be famous? Other than a brief period when I was sort of 14 where I had <laughs> mistaken dreams of basketball superstardom. <laughs> I don't think I've ever really wanted to be famous. Not really. Mm. It's never really a likelihood for me. And I, I don't think I'd want the scrutiny of it. To be honest, it's never been a strong motivator for me. I think there's 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 a slight nuance there to that question though, maybe. And I don't think I'd want to be famous in the famous, like, you know, all over the tabloids, all over TV or whatever sense. Yeah. But I think a leader in your field is a mm-hmm. slightly different thing. I think maybe that's what I would more the type of fame, sort of in inverted comments, that I would more aspire to. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess in the very niche sort of what's the what's the word for it yeah in the niche community of british birding i think i'm sort of known-ish <laughs> not a celebrity yeah. or anything but i think i know i'm like i know a lot of people in a sort of very niche community but i wouldn't, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that was fame do you think that um because i'm just thinking about um our dad always jokes that you were like mr oxford and sort of that sense of like being a beanock I guess you're a bit of a, which is a big name on campus. Um, and I guess you do also have that in this community of British birders and twitchers. And I guess that's kind of a similar thing again of like wanting to be like successful in your field and be known for your work. Do you think that's something that you would be, you would feel bad about if that isn't like a level that you achieve? Like what do you think, yeah, what do you think that does for you? I think the thing with achieving success as an academic, and this goes back to your earlier question, is you need all these different skills. So you need you need to like be able to win funding. You need to be able to analyze data. You need to be able to design and think of the right questions to ask. You need to be able to publish. You need to be able to work collaboratively. You need to be able to supervise students. And like, it's a lot. And it's it's not like 
what I sort of really respect and kind of envy are these professions like athlete, like chef as a special, I mean, I'm well into, well into master chef, the professionals as a, as an aside, but I, I really, really respect that sort of skill of having, and okay, being a chef is quite complicated being, there's a lot of skills you need, but like having that thing where you can very clearly compartmentalize the skills and be like, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to really dedicate myself to this and I'm going to be like the best at this. And I really like have, I, mm-hmm. yeah, I suppose now you sort of get getting to it a little bit. It's like, I do really want to be the best, but I think that's a lot harder to, that's a lot harder to do in something like academia than it is in a sort of slightly more, I hesitate the word to use linear, but do you know what I mean? That a slightly yeah. more structured. specialized, structured profession, like being an athlete or a chef. I, I'd love like, you know, I sort of have like a, sort of obviously I wanted to be a basketball player when I was a kid because I was deluded and didn't realize I was going to be small and unathletic there was like and it wasn't like a brief phase there were years there were years to, when the I, goal was NBA I, player I used to get up when I was at yeah, yeah I don't know I was about 14 15 and I made friends with the IT coordinator at my school who was like played basketball at uni and she would open the school sports hall for me at 6 a.m on a Friday I'd get up at five to get to school for six to shoot before school like shoot hundreds of shots for like no discernible reason just just because like I, I find like be the best. it's almost like work like I hate it because it's sort of kind of what drives capitalism and people's like do, like love the grind desire for hustle yeah. all this bullshit Americanized yeah. capitalism rise shit. and grind exactly that yeah. that fucking rise and grind bro culture crap but like yeah. I don't know I, I I but then I that sort of commitment to working on a sort of craft I do like being a computer something is something that really appeals to me and I haven't really quite ever interrogated why. Mm. if that makes sense you've mentioned getting up at 5am maybe four times in this podcast so it might just be insomnia maybe like... maybe I'm just <laughs> an early riser who knows it's like in twilight when the vampires can't sleep so they just <laughs> get really good at everything and all the extra time that they have that's it but I do think it's incredible that you have had multiple things that you're passionate enough about that you're gonna get up at 5am and then to compare that to having to get up at 5am for something that you're not passionate about and how that was the factor that made you realise that you can't do that anymore. Not because you just had to get up at 5 because you've been doing that, but because you don't give a shit about what you're going to do. Well, I think think that's a really interesting point about giving a shit about what you do. Because, like, I think a lot of people just see work as a means to an end. And I think for a lot of people, obviously, who are in different circumstances, who are no way have been given the immense amount of privilege that I've had in my life, work is something you just have to do and and so I feel very lucky in a respect that that I the thing that motivates me is like something that I'm interested in or want to do I find stuff that I'm not interested in it just that was what really got to me about working in a corporate job is like I'm putting so much time and energy I'm so tired all the time and like I don't give a fuck about any of this like I couldn't care less and that's just why I would and then I'd spend all my free time going down to London to get absolutely blackout drunk to forget how miserable I was about doing something I wasn't interested Mm -hmm. in and that's actually mad because I never really like maybe I've never interrogated to this degree but like it's it's almost like a boredom thing I just can't stand being bored I can't stand not having Mm. something I, I don't know I really clearly need a lot of like mental stimulation and I think that's why academia is yeah. good because like currently I'm, I'm a postdoc, but I'm working on about three different projects. I spend a lot of time chatting to other researchers, like reading people's drafts, like other PhD students who I've been in research groups with. Like it's very varied and it's all quite interesting. Yeah. And I think that's maybe. Yeah. And there's an element of challenge that you want to, like a challenge that you actually want to rise to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've never really thought about it. Yeah. In that I, much, you know. well, I wanted to talk about bird watching and, and playing basketball because they're things that 
I think you've been doing both of them, maybe basketball not quite this long, but for nearly 20 years yeah, um, in far. both cases. And that's amazing. I don't think there are actually many people that have hobbies for that long at age 28. And I just want to ask you a little bit about each of them and what they've meant for you, particularly through your 20s, when you've carried them on beyond maybe the age where people either turn their hobby into what they're going to do or they kind of stop doing it and do what they're going to do. Um, yeah, so what have those hobbies like meant for you? And do you think that they'll continue now throughout the rest of your life? Football team. Just a note for listeners, actually, that you are six foot four. Um, just to feel like that's an important part of the... If it was just like, oh, I dreamed of being an NBA player, but I'm like five seven yeah but i'm wildly athletic like i can barely jump over a cat like <laughs> it was not a realistic dream <laughs> carry on carry on uh, yeah but yeah and uh, yeah so i just took up basketball actually because you played basketball and i just got invited <laughs> to join in because i got taken to one of your sessions and i was just sat on the sideline and i knew some of the people who were in i think the phrase either. that i played basketball was incredibly generous of you you you, you spent most of your time on the court avoiding the ball but yes you you were, you were and involved dad said they used to cry with laughter at my games because if the ball came anywhere near me i would run away from it with my pigtails like flying <laughs> the only running that i ever did was away from the basketball what a spectacle what a spectacle but yeah <laughs> um yeah so i started playing and i think it just i ended up playing relatively seriously like i played like national league so like one year the team i was on so that was like you know training two or three times a week playing like weekend games traveling around so we, i played for stockport and we played like you know newcastle york other teams in the north and then we'd play other teams from the south in the playoffs and one year we finished fifth in the country you know it's like pretty high level but yeah. i just had a few injuries and i got a bit when i turned 16 our coach was very serious and he would have us all on facebook and he'd be like I, if i've got a picture of you with a can in your hand at the weekend you're not playing at this point i realized i wasn't going to be in the nba and i was like hmm i quite like yeah. this whole going to parties and having a, having a few cans thing yeah this is not actually <laughs> coach carter <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you know i'm short and athletic and i live in england so there's a lot of things against me here i say short as a relative term obviously <laughs> so yeah so then i went to uni and I, I sort of was like nah this isn't for me to play like you know high level books or anything so i just played casually but it's great because i got to meet loads of people and just played like pickup on the courts in oxford in the summer just unlike a, at random schools and stuff. And that was a nice way to meet people who weren't in my college, who weren't on my course. I, I went back to Manchester and played for a year in the local league when I was when I was working as an auditor. And that was quite cool. And people I played with when I was sort of 17, 18, you know, still got to yeah. know. And then, yeah, down here, I was like, right, I guess the uni might have a basketball team. I'm a student technically, so I'll join it. And yeah, I got to play part of the Cornish Basketball League and sort of second game ever I smashed my elbow to pieces and was out for a year so that was good <laughs> trying to foul someone who'd push me so you know that's that's karma in an instant for you <laughs> amazing <laughs> which is my fourth arm break related to basketball so that's really what curtailed my NBA dreams is the injuries it wasn't my yeah, lack exactly. of any discernible ability um scouts were on their way <laughs> they were they were they're at that game actually they were they were upset yeah. <laughs> they were like oh no there goes his chance um <laughs> but yeah I think it's brilliant because you know I ended up then the year after that, the president who was an undergrad ended up dropping out of uni. And I, because I was a bit older and had run things before as an undergrad, I was like, I can take over. So I ended up being president of the, the uni basketball society down here. And I got to know a load of undergrads and like people doing different things. And But like, it's it's quite a sort of uni bubble here and you don't necessarily yeah. meet people in the community, but playing in that league, I got to meet sort of a lot of people in the community. And because I was organizing it, I was, you know, helping like I was on the scorers table and I was helping like with you know going mm. to like league meetings and I f it's a way it's, it's a way that I sort of ingrain myself in the community and since I finished my PhD 
because I didn't, you know, it got to a point where I was sort of 26 and all the people on the uni team were 18. And, you know, still, we still play pickup, but, you know, I was actually, if I wasn't recording this, I'd be playing now at the uni with some of the uni lads. Mm. But um, it, it was, I was a bit like, okay, I'm a bit old for this now. So I just went and played with the local, because I'd had these contacts, I went and, and now I play for the Truro team. And that's a great club, you know, it's like you, you get 30 odd people at training on a Tuesday night and on the best days and there's yeah. three teams that, you know, three of the 10 teams in the league are from this Truro club and people go out for drinks after the games and, you know, it's just a nice way to meet people. I think I think sports are a really good way, especially when you've moved somewhere where it's outside of a work bubble. I know work for me is a university, so it's a bit different to like someone being in an office or whatever. But yeah, I think it's really it's really helped me. And and you know, it's 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 a bit of an impetus to, to work on my on my fitness as well because I'm you know inherently I've never been much of a gym person, but I found myself this year a bit being like in games, just feeling knackered. I'm like, I really could probably work on my fitness a bit, or feeling like you know getting sort of like out muscled by slightly bigger blokes and it's, it's sort of i've started going to the gym in the past couple of months just to mm. not to, not really keep through... up with the cornish farmers oh don't don't joke <laughs> <laughs> those blokes aren't fucking around <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah basically like i think it's it, it's provided me an impetus to keep in shape and me and my one of my best mates um from the team we go to the gym a lot together and stuff and yeah it's helped me build a slightly different social circle and get to mm. know people in the community and i really like it makes me feel a lot more connected to the place than if i was just here working yeah. for university and I think you know it's something I'd like to to keep going so me and my partner potentially are thinking of moving to Sweden next year depending yeah. on jobs and stuff but I was looking one of the first things I looked at was okay does this town that the university would be Lund University in southern Sweden and I was like okay is there any basketball there and there's like a big community club called Lund's Basket where it's like we uh we're, we're, we encourage people of all abilities I was like sick but it's a friendly atmosphere and it's yeah so i was like this is this will be my way in if i move you know if even if i move to another country this will be like an infant and for as long as i'm sort of physically able i would like to keep going with it yeah and i know that this is a whole podcast but i'd love to hear a bit about maybe what birding has meant like the highlights like maybe how you got into it and then the highlights of how it's continued yeah so burning is quite an interesting one so i guess like I think it's a maybe a sort of collector instinct slightly to be able to like it's name kind of cataloging cataloging is the, exactly the right term which again a bit of a neurodivergent trait but who knows <laughs> um yeah. but yeah but yeah i've, I've always <laughs> i like, think had, we do <laughs> i think there might be some hints um but yeah i've always had this um yeah this interest in that sure and there's videos of me as a little kid you know when we went to lady street with, with sam our, our granddad i was like oh that's a house martin oh actually no it's brown i think it's a sam martin you know i was like five like I'd obviously yeah. read a book about birds and stuff, but I think it really started for me with with, with our grandma actually when um she used to look after me in the school holidays and she had bird feeders in her garden and it was two thousand it was Easter two thousand and three so yeah nearly twenty years ago and I was mm. just watching the birds come into her feeders and like she we had a little book and I was like oh that's a great tip that's a coulter that's a chaffinch or whatever and I was like really getting into it she's like oh we could do this a bit more so we went to like a place called Risley Moss near Manchester where they had a feeding station and I just like vividly remember seeing these bullfinches which are these like almost like salmon pink flushed males of like a black cap and a white rump and this like beautiful sort of like pearlescent mm. gray on the mantle they're just like i just remember seeing them as a little kid and be like holy shit that's like amazing and i think maybe that was a bit of a sort of starter bird for me and i think grandma sort of saw that and we would go she lived near near park in bramwell bramwell park and we'd go and see the kingfishers and the woodpeckers and not all these cool birds that i'd never sort of been aware of before yeah and then so that summer we went to went camping for a week in the summer holidays in july to uh anglesey Girada bay in anglesey and we went to mm. south stack where there's a big seabird colony so i saw puffins and like razorbills and guillemots just sort of got progressively more and more into it based on that 
I, we, so we used to do that on school holidays and I would keep it pretty secret, you know, as a teenage, teenage boy, like with whatever, you know, growing up as a man is quite easy in a lot of ways, but I think teenage boys are pretty cruel. And so I was yeah. like, I was very much like, right, I'm keeping a secret. And then people come around like, why you got these bird books? Oh yeah, I used to be interested in that. Like, I'm not interested in that. And a few, a few yeah. of my mates knew, but like people didn't really know. And then yeah. people didn't realize to my 18th birthday because uh, my girlfriend at the time made me like an albatross thing on my cake like a cake with like an albert like a sort of marzipan albatross thing and they're like liam you're into birds I was like yeah yeah i'm still into birds i felt comfortable in myself at that point when i was yeah. 18 i'd gone to college with different people who i was more strongly mates with and more I had more in common with and i felt really comfortable in myself with that yeah and then and then dad also took me for a week to the hours of silly which is like this mecca for birders since the sort of 70s it's all the rare because mm. because of where it is it's off, so it's off the west coast of cornwall sort of 28 miles west of land's end and it gets birds from sort of all po- points of the compass like you know it's like the s- silly list is like 450 species given right. that the british list is like 600 species you know it's it's like and this place. is a tiny island yeah. this is like a t- tiny little set of tiny little archipelago of islands and then I met a group of young birders. So they have this thing called bird log, which is fucking hilarious in retrospect. But like you sit there and you go, and the, and the bloke who's on the microphone in this pub, we're all there with a pint. And there's a group of young birders. So like me and a load of other young birders. So I never met another young birder before. So yeah. this was all like quite mind blowing. We'd sit at this thing and then someone would go through the list of the whole list of birds. And it'd be like, mute swan. Oh yeah, I had six on Tresco. Oh, I had seven actually. And it'd be like, it almost this like back and forth. And it was just, dad, dad was like, what the fuck is this? But, <laughs> but I was like, this is amazing. And I still, you know, I, I go to Silly every year. I've, I'm now the rarity secretary for Silly. But that's that was that first meeting the young birders and especially a, a guy called Dave. And then we, I went to stay with him in, in Surrey and we'd email back and forth about like exciting birds we'd seen. And then mm. I started going twitching. So twitching is basically going a long distance to see a really rare bird that someone else has found that you know is likely to be there rather than just going to a place to, to look for what birds are there. Yeah. Which purely like And it's like a race thing. to the bird. It's almost of. like a race to the bird. Yeah. So it's like, you know, being in like one time I was in, I was in Manchester just sat on Perm Experts and I decided there's obviously a lot of news services that cater to nutter twitchers like me like yeah. oh my god white thread needle tail harris out of hebrides i'm sitting in manchester so that's that's a fair a fair long a fairly long way away the harris is like you know western isles out of hebrides in scotland so a long way away within an hour i w- i had run i had got a missed call for a number i didn't know from a bloke i knew through a facebook group who said to me if you can get to durham by midnight it was about 8 p.m you can come with me and we'll go and see this bird so i had to run downstairs yeah. beg mum for money I was like, I need 150 quid. I need to go to Durham to meet a bloke I've never met before from the internet to drive to the Western Isles. I was 19 <laughs> at this point. I wasn't a kid. Yeah. But like, uh, so she was like, oh, fine, whatever, Liam, just go. I mean, I'm very, very, very indulged as a child, yeah. as I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, um, I really do. <laughs> but yeah, so like, I ran, got the train to Durham, met these people I'd never met with, drove overnight to Ullapool, got on this ferry because it's an island you have to go on this three-hour ferry across the minch from Ullapool to, to Stornoway on Lewis and then we had to drive down and it was like this constant on oh the bird's there oh it's not oh the bird's there oh it's not we got there and it had flown off and this is like a giant swift it should be in Japan so it breeds in Japan and winters in Australia so it's on okay. the wrong side of the world completely and it's yeah. like this they can fly 80 miles an hour in level flight it's like this sort of almost like the holy grail of British twitching basically mm. so we'd all got there and I was like it's gone, right? And there was like, there was this amazing, beautiful, I, you know, the night before I'd been sat in Manchester on my bed playing Xbox with my mate. And then I was like, okay, now I'm in this amazing place with stunning mountains, beautiful mountains, like a little kettle of like three white-tailed eagles overhead. And like, it was just like breeding red-throated divers and all this amazing, amazing landscape. And I was like, this bird's gone. This is shit. I've wasted 150 quid. I'm going to go. <laughs> I was like asleep in the car. I was like, oh, why have I I'm done gonna this? I'm going to go drown myself in a pinch. <laughs> Basically, yeah. 
not far off. And then I was, I was asleep and then I suddenly was woken up, I was shouting and running and someone had found it. So we like bombed down this single track road. People were like chucking, like jumping each other's cars, throwing keys at people. Like we got there, people had left their engines running, like doors open all watched it. And then like, we just watched it for like a couple of hours and it was just like coming over our heads over this little lock and it was like eagles and like beautiful sun. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And that's the sort of like crazy adrenaline side of twitching. I think the thing with birding is like that's so great is it's such a multifaceted hobby because there's going to your local patch. So I go to like College Reservoir, which is at the end of my road. And I keep, you know, I really go there two or three times a week and, and record what I've seen. And that's sort of what you call local patching and being really interested in the sort of, se- you can see the seasonal changes in a small area. And then yeah. there's sort of, there's like twitching, which is this mad sort of dashing across the country, which, you know, is not great carbon wise. It's a bit... And I've sort of like, I think that was something I got really into when I was young. And I think a lot of the young bird of culture when I was in my early 20s was like, we're all going to see each other at Twitches and we're all going to go twitching all over the place and like get a big list and see all these really cool birds. And it was great. And it was really formative and I absolutely loved mm-hmm. it. But like, especially now living in Cornwall, you know, I feel like not grown out of it quite, but yeah, it's not something I was, I'm as yeah. interested in now. Much more that about sounds like sort. really interesting fodder for a play that someone it- <laughs> should write. <laughs> I think, I don't know. It sounds like it's almost like a plot. <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good plot for a play. Um, Yeah, I think that's amazing. And that story that you were just kind of telling, which I think sums up twitching and that sort of thrill factor, happened about 10 years ago. Twitching and birding, to some extent, are a constant. But I would love to know, what do you feel has changed about you and about your life over the last 10 years and what hasn't as well? I think I've become a bit more like, I feel like I know myself a bit more and I think I'm more comfortable in like being myself to other people. That's a, that's something I started doing at uni when I was like, well, I'm just going to tell people I like birds. That's what I'm into. Like, that's what I do. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, but I think one of the things I did, especially in my early 20s was like, I think I used to really like going out a lot and drinking way too much. And I think that was, I never really thought of it like it was a problem because it was just like, I'm being sociable, blah, blah, blah. But I think I... I don't think I'm socially awkward, but I think maybe I'm not quite as socially adept as I maybe would want to be. And so I think I sort of, the coping mechanism for that a bit was like, oh, I'll just have a few pints and then I'll be, I'll be golden. And I used to, mm-hmm. I used to have it actually, because I, I used to go to loads of gigs and stuff. And like, I went to Leeds Festival when I was a kid, like, you know, late teens, 17, 18 and that quite a few times. And I used to remember just being at these things. Like, I don't really want to do this. Like, I don't really want to be here, mm-hmm. but I feel like I have to be here. And the way I cope with it would be getting like absolutely smashed. And that's the same with like going out. Like I remember going out like clubbing. I did enjoy it and I would have a dance. But like, And you went out a lot as well. Not like this, not bragging, but like, yeah, like my final year of uni, I was going out three times a week, like every week, you know, never mind the money that you spend on that. But like, I'd like to say that I enjoyed it. And I think at times I did, but I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I sort of convinced myself that I did. I would hesitate to use the word like, alcoholism but i definitely would be like i can't wait to like for like to finish like lectures or whatever and like go for a pint and stuff like i was thinking about like getting pissed like in the day i don't think i was particularly happy i think that really came to more of a head when i was like working as an accountant and i was spending because i was really not happy with what i was doing in the day you know it was one thing when you're happy in the day and you're just going out and you're having a few drinks to sort of as a bit of a social lubricant to be like i need to i just want to feel like a bit more socially able Mm. and not as restricted or whatever then yeah, when I was that, I was like, I need to get blackout drunk because I fucking hate my life, kind of thing. You know, and, yeah, you the know, same lot- urge in a different context becomes, I need to drink until I can't think anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was, and so then I think moving to do this PhD, I think 
changed quite a lot. And I think, you know, I still go to the pub and stuff and I still went out a bit, but I think like I sort of, that calm, I definitely, that side of me, like going out, getting smashed all the time, definitely calmed down. And then I think lockdown really accelerated that because like, there's just no, no scope to do it. And I think I still like, you know, I still mm. now would like, I still like enjoy meeting my, my mates from, from PhD mates and sort of mates from work, I would say now, I guess, and going for a few drinks and that. But I'm very much more like, I don't feel like, you know, some of them are a bit younger because they're still in their PhD and stuff and they're like going out and I don't feel like I don't feel as much like I need to bow to any social pressure to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And it is really a pressure because I think potentially a lot of people measure how fun and exciting their life is and how happy they are by how much they're going out and doing this kind of thing. And for you, it's actually been the opposite in that the worse you've you felt like your life was and the less you were enjoying it the more you were doing that kind of thing I guess as a compensation I don't know I guess I feel like in a much more comfortable with like how I like to socialize place where I don't feel like I need to have need to do things I'm not actually that fussed about just to like not to miss out or to maintain relationships with people because like people yeah people want to be like if you like people want to be a mate they'll be a mate on your context if you know what I mean I mean no so I think that makes that, sense how how do you feel your relationships have changed in your 20s <laughs> I think my mates down here I think it's it feels like because we're all working in ecology basically we're all, we're all scientists I guess we all have a more, I think we're a bit just more similar I think one yeah. of the great virtues of going to Oxford was you don't end up with loads of mates just on your course because of the college system. You have mates in different years and in different subjects. And that was brilliant. And I got to meet loads of people because of that. But like, I feel like I'm maybe more similar values wise and sort of like what I'm interested in and like lifestyle wise to the people I know here, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I guess maybe I feel like I have friendships with slightly more common interests. It doesn't, you know, not to devalue any friendships I had in the past because I think I've had great groups of mates at every sort of stage. I feel very lucky for the friendships I have had. Yeah, maybe that's maybe it's changed a bit in that the, yeah. the friends I have here are more similar to me. Yeah. Don't know if um, that makes sense. It's going to be no secret to this podcast that I went through a huge breakup last year. I'm sure I'll mention it in most episodes or introductions. Um, do you have any good breakup advice? Because this is something that happens to a lot of people in their 20s. I think every relationship you can grow from and I think a good thing to do when you break up is you you can sort of almost like do a bit of an audit. I hesitate to use that word, but a bit ironic yeah. in the circumstances. But you can be like, okay, what worked for me? What didn't? Did I like who I was as a person in that relationship? Did I like who I was when I was with them? What have I learned from it? Like, how do I want to be? And it can, you know, it can be a time to really like be quite introspective and be like, okay, this wasn't working for me. I didn't like these things about who I was in that relationship. I'm going to mm. change this breakups are sad and breakups can be really hard you know but i think they can also be a time for like introspection and like growth not that you know sometimes breakups are just about surviving and you're going to feel shit for a while and stuff i'm not saying everything has to be a growth opportunity or once you've dealt with like the sort of almost like the wrenching emotional part of it i think yeah it's a good time once you're feeling once you've moved past that initial just feeling of like upset i think it's a good time to like interrogate like what you want and who you are and that sort of thing that makes sense i agree because i started journaling for the first time ever after this breakup which i fucking hated and i despise how well it works um like it makes me really upset that something as basic as journaling always 
works um so that annoys me but I do now do it and I think it's good for dealing with what you just described as the heart-wrenching just emotional bit where you just have a lot of emotions and getting them out kind of takes them out of your head but someone recommended to me in the first few weeks of the breakup a journaling exercise where you basically write down everything that you really liked about your relationship that you would want again in a relationship and then everything about your relationship that you never want to happen in a relationship again and I put off doing that for six months because I just didn't want to I knew how helpful it would be but I just didn't actually want to sit and admit those things I think I didn't want to be sad about the things that I wanted and I didn't want to admit how many things there were that I didn't want but as soon as I did it I felt a lot more free of that relationship. Like it did make me feel like this is actually done and I don't need to have those things again. And I could have those things again in a different circumstance. And I definitely left that audit as you were with a lot of like closure. So I think that is a really good piece of advice. Yeah. The last thing I want to ask about twenties is that in general, there's a very big deal made about, becoming yourself in your 20s and using this decade to become who you're going to be for the rest of your life and not to put too fine a point on it but you're turning 29 in October um and I just wonder (laughs) do you feel like yourself now in this current moment of your life like do you feel like yourself yeah I do I do feel like myself because I don't I don't feel like I sort of pretend to be something I'm not or do things because of how I want to be perceived Mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah. I feel like I do things because I'm interested in doing them and I, I, I don't think necessarily I think I think sort of I guess throughout life you're always developing and growing and that's something not to sound wanky but that's something I, I'm quite conscious of doing it's like I, I, I want to always try and learn more about myself and about other people and about like yeah. how things work in the world I don't think like I'm necessarily that's like, not wanky I think wankers don't do that <laughs> yeah that's true so like I read a lot of like nonfiction and stuff because I'm quite interested in like understanding how things work and stuff like that and like mm-hmm. being yourself in terms of a finished article that's definitely not the case like I don't like I haven't got this sort of like long term necessarily like five year plan like you said you know what does it take to be in academia and how do you know you want to have a career in, in academia like I, I don't know if that will be what I end up doing for the rest of my life like yeah. last last year I, I sort of finished a short term postdoc contract and didn't have anything and then ended up applying for a job working for an ecological consultancy that was a well-paid job doing sort of stuff that was relevant to what I'd done but I was like I don't think I'm quite ready to like just do the same very similar things every week and just go into like a career like a sort of standard more corporate although it's still a college career but who's you know it's not to say that I'll necessarily just decided that now I'm an academic and I'm going to work and I'm going to end up as a professor you say becoming yourself in your 20s and I think that's an I think that, I know I know what you mean, but I guess the danger with that is that you, I think anyone who thinks they're going to be a finished article by the end of their twenties mm. is probably kidding themselves a bit. I don't think. Or maybe got even it missing out on the opportunity of changing. More yeah, than exactly. They could. Maybe I, I feel like maybe I'm always torn between like I'd want to have a five year plan and I want to like know what I'm doing. I want to know like what's next for me and I want to have like a stage of like easily sort of achievable bullet points to get there kind of thing and I think that's all well and good in like the self-help books and the sort of ideal life and all the rest of it but like Mm -hmm. okay not like I'm again I'm only 28 I'm not like some old wise person but I just don't think that's how life happens to people 
And so I think it's good to have an idea of what you want to do. And it's good to like understand the potential steps that you, you've got towards achieving that. But I think, I think it's good also to maintain some flexibility and, and not be too set in your ways and say, well, this is the way, this is how I plan things. You know, this is how other people are doing things. So this is how I need to do things. I think, I think you should, I think that keeping that sort of, yeah, openness to, to change and flexibility, which, you know, I'm not the best at dealing with change necessarily, but I think trying to keep that openness to it is, is yeah. quite important for me. Definitely. I think that's a really nice answer to end on. Thank you so much for doing this. I think this is actually weirdly, maybe for the listener, very similar to the normal phone calls that we have, to be honest. Yeah, I think like a lot of this, we, we talk about pretty regularly anyway, but it was really nice to like have time to like dig into stuff more so i really appreciate you coming on and chatting about all the stuff that you've done and i'm going to carry on talking to you after i stop recording so i'm going to do that now Mm -hmm.